With that, let's pray. We're, hopefully, you've all found Habakkuk chapter 2 by now. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll read the first five verses of this chapter. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this, uh, this, le- this, this, this prophetic book of Habakkuk uh, that, is, that is unique. It's a, it's a prophet who is struggling with things that he's seen in his culture, seeing the demise of his nation spiritually, uh, seeing the rise of the Babylonians sort of threatening them, and really his wondering, uh, how could this be happening to God's people? And so, Lord, I thank you for the lessons uh, in this book. Uh, Lord, first and foremost, the greatest lesson that I see in all of Habakkuk is that the just live by faith. And so, Lord, I ask that as we study uh, this book today, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding of faith, uh, help us to grow in our relationship with you. Uh, For those who maybe have not come to faith in Christ, may they come to faith in Christ. For those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, Lord, I ask that you would help us to live by faith. Um, Lord, it's a difficult thing at times, and I find myself often as the man with the the son in the New Testament that uh, he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So, Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, help us to increase our trust in you. Lord, we ask that you would help us now as we navigate this longer section of Scripture today. Father, I pray that your heart would come through the text, where your spirit help us and guide us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Father, we ask that you would help us now. We thank you for your word, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we um, look to, to conclude Habakkuk, I decided it would probably not be best to read the whole chapter and the following one. Uh, I tend to zone out when people are reading, even if I'm following along. So we'll, we're sort of going to take it incrementally. Um, the aim here is to sort of get the big, bigger picture of, of what's happening in this, this uh, prophetic book of Habakkuk. Uh, the, the first week, we really... Uh, zoned in, got really close, almost microscopic, looking historically at, at Israel, what was going on. Over here, we see the chart of, of sort of following Israel as a nation um, and its various prophets. On the left, we see the couple kings. Uh, following the death of Solomon, the nation was divided between north and south. To the north, uh, we have 10 tribes. 
And the, the ten tribes up here, they made it until 722 B.C. Um, they were founded um, sort of in rebellion. They broke away from the southern kingdom, the two tribes that remained. Um, they, they took the name Israel. Um, as they were established, they, they set up idolatry and false gods. And, and, and essentially, all of the kings on the north, um, they were all pretty much bad. And finally, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians, one of the world's greatest powers during the time, there were three, they, they came down and they took the nation into captivity. Um, uh, following the southern sort of historical action of what went on, um, these dates, 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. are key dates to just remember in your study of the scriptures, to know Israel's history, um, the southern kingdom was two tribes. It's Jerusalem, Judea area, the southern part of Israel. Uh, it is where the temple was. There's a series of bad kings through this, through this era. Uh, eventually, a good one, a really good one, would surface. His name was Josiah. He took the throne at eight years old. Um, I believe when he was 16, he had sort of a, an encounter with God where he turned his heart to God. Um, God really used him in a, in a mighty way to go through his, his kingdom, to, to purge the land of, of idolatry, um, to, and God used him to really spark a, um, a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, a spiritual revival in the land. It was exciting for the prophets. Habakkuk lived during this era. He saw the the wave of spirituality turned back to God and people's hearts were restored and, and sort of everything was going well for the nation. But the other world power, Egypt from the south, they sent a letter to the King Josiah saying, hey, we'd like to go through um, your land. We have some business that we want to do up in Assyria. And basically Josiah said no to the king. He met with him. The king said, we don't really care and we're going we're gonna to steamroll through your nation. And so Josiah slipped back, a great warrior that he was. He basically put on uh, the warrior clothing of his army, and he said, we're going to fight, and we're going we're gonna to try to stop um, Egypt for whatever they're doing. Josiah was killed in that uh, scur uh, little scursion, and, and um, his, his two sons eventually took over, and within 10 years, the whole southern nation was basically filled with idolatry. Again, that spiritual revival that they were going through, everything came to a collapse, and, and it, 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 everything took off in a poor way. It was during this window that Habakkuk, basically as a prophet, saw this great revival, then saw it all implode, and he began asking questions. What's going on? Our economy's falling apart. The people aren't walking with God. I call out to God. It doesn't seem like he's listening to me. Um, and, and he's just torn up. And then he asks the two questions in the first of the book. He says, um, God, how long do I have to call out and you not respond? How long do I have to see this iniquity and you not do anything about it? How, how am I getting fed up with this? And God says, look, observe. I'm doing something in your day that if I told you, you wouldn't even believe. Habakkuk would be like, oh boy, this is great. But then Habakkuk's bubble is popped when God tells him that he's raising up the Babylonians. This, uh, so if there's Egypt as one world power, they were in the rise but declining. The Assyrians had risen to power as a second nation, and they were in decline. And then there were the Babylonians or the Chaldeans as um, 
the New American Standard refers to it, or to them, they were in, in growing power, and they were ruthless, and they were continuing. And God says, these are the people I'm raising up to deal with Israel. And so now Habakkuk is more confused. You know, sometimes you ask God for clarity of your future, and he maybe gives it to you, and you're like, oh, I wish I never asked that question. Really, God is graceful, sometimes not revealing to us what's uh, down the road for us. We can trust in his grace in, in those moments as we're living in those moments. And so Habakkuk, as he tries to focus at the end of chapter 1, sort of on the things that he knows about God, he knows God is holy, he, he knows God is righteous, he knows that he's pure, um, he's trying to reconcile what he knows about God and what God has just told him about the Babylonians. And he ends in the very first part, this first verse of chapter 2. We covered it last week. He ends with, a, I will stand on my guard post. I will station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And so um, he's confused. Um, this week on Wednesday, we went to the Sound of Music. You know, I kind of keep my eye out on plays for the girls in my family. And I kind of surprise them with like, you know, nosebleed seats. I don't know if they count as nosebleed seats when you're a play because no softballs were hit, nobody was injured. But we saw um, the sound of music, and 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 at the very end of the play, you know, the story about the von Trump family, based on a true story, and and they are they're sort of on the run at the end of the movie. I don't know if it's in the at the end of the movie at the end of the play. I don't know if it's in the movie or not. Um, but they're hiding in the abbey. They're, they're hiding there in the garden. The Germans have come. There's the six, or no, the 17-year-old boy, because remember, she's 16, going on 17. He was 17, going on 18. I, now I know their ages. Um, and now I've stuck that song in your heads. Um, so he shows up. He sees the family. And then he basically goes away, and so it's, nobody's clear there. But in that scene, when they're fearful, they can hear the Germans the little youngest girl, she sort of calls out. She's like, I thought this was God's house. And they say, it is, dear. And she says, kind of like, well, why did God let them in? And that struggle that she's kind of wrestling through, like, here, why is God allowing this to happen, is the struggle that, that Habakkuk is having. And so now he's, he says he's going to go up into this tower. He's going to wait. He's going to pray. He's going to seek God. He's really obeying God if you were to go back to chapter 1, verse 5, where God says, look among the nations, observed, be astonished, wonder. There's this command to go up and to keep an eye out. Um, up on Palomar Mountain I, for years, I thought the little white thing that I was seeing was the observatory. And then I was corrected many years later, like, hey, you're not looking at the observatory. I'm like, yeah, it's a little white thing up there. <laughs> no, that's, was it Booker's Hill? Booker's Watchtower? I got to wrote down. Booker Hill. Looks like B-O-U-C-H-E-R, but it's pronounced Booker. And what that is is a fire tower. And I guess it goes back to the 20s where people would stand watch up there and they would look for fires around the county. And if they saw smoke, then they could alert everyone. And so this is sort of the image that, that we see in Habakkuk when he says, I will stand my guard post. It's the idea of going up into this watchtower, getting to a place where you can where you can seek God, you can wait on God, and then when God responds, then you can go out and tell the people what's happening. And so here he is, he's waiting. He's seeking what God would do. 
And then in verse 2, we read, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe on it tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is not yet for the appointed time, for it hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. And so here, as Habakkuk is waiting on the Lord, God speaks to him. He says, write this down. Um, you know, I, I talked about the idea that there are some who think that, um, would take this verse and say, well, that the idea is that God's written down. The person could then read uh, what was written and then respond in turn. There's, there could be some truth in that. I, I, I think it applies. Um, most likely, it was the idea that a, that a, a prophet could receive the word, that Habakkuk would write it down, and then it would be given to others so that they can run with this message uh, to, to warn the people. We see this great uh, nature of God, his mercifulness to us, um, that he is so patient. I think of Second Peter 3, 9, when, it, when Peter writes that God's not slow about the promise he's made, but he desires to see all men come to salvation. And so because of his desire of seeing people come to repentance, coming to relationship with Christ, God's wrath is slow about being sort of um, administered. And he says, the vision is not for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. It will not fail. Throughout this conclusion, uh, you'll see that God keeps saying, wait for it. Wait for it. Though it tarries, it will be here. We know that at the time of um, writing, that Habakkuk is 20 years out from the Babylonians coming and taking. So there's 20 years of waiting for this, this, uh, this wrath of God manifested through the Babylonians to come upon Israel. To see Israel go away as a nation for, uh, I think it was 2,500 years. The math isn't fresh in my brain, but we go from, you know, 7 or 5, 586 B.C. to 1948. I think it's 2,500 years um, that this would come and that he's to wait. And he says in verse 4, and this is still the Lord speaking, Behold, as far as the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like shoal, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. So we see this, this contrast that's going to sort of play out um, through the rest of this chapter, um, mostly on the negative side. So we see the proud one. Behold, as far as the proud one. Um, this is the arrogant one. This is the one that's self-sustaining. In many ways, he's describing the Babylonian people, which would be a tool used by God to discipline his own people. Um, he uses some of the same language that he's like death. He's never satisfied as, as he already described to us in chapter one, the Chaldean people as they went through and just decimated everybody that they encountered. There was no holding back on them. And tucked away in here is probably one of the most important verses in the whole of Scripture. This verse started the Reformation. Uh, this verse has been used in the lives of many people like the Apostle Paul, which we'll look at. At the very end of the verse 4, it says, But the righteous will live by his faith. And this verse is sort of, I think, is the kind of like the key verse in Habakkuk. 
that God is trying to get Habakkuk and the people to walk by faith, to live by faith, to trust him. Um, it says, but the righteous. Some translations might read the just or the righteous. These, these terms of theological standing before God, that they will live by his faith or faith. The question is, well, what is faith? Um, we, from a Christian perspective, would understand faith to be sort of um, limited to trusting God in sort of the, uh, the way that the, the Bible speaks upon. Um, the reality is, is all people exercise faith, all, all, all people. Um, you know, there's many in the atheist camp that would say, oh, you guys just live by faith and we're more on fact. But the reality is, is that all people, including scientists, exercise a ton of faith. Uh, there's a book, um, uh, Gunning for God, written by John Lennox. He's a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. He wrote a book in 2011, and he was arguing this point that both sides really exercise faith. John Lennox, a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, he argues that everyone has faith in something, even atheists. Lennox notes that the word faith isn't just a religious word. It comes from the Latin word fides, which means trust or reliance. Lennox writes, the irony is that atheism is a faith position and science itself cannot do without faith. He goes on by uh, quoting a number of atheist scientists, too too many for me to sort of write here, but one is he quotes uh, Albert Einstein. I'm sure you guys have all heard about him. Uh, He said, I cannot imagine a scientist without that profound faith that the universe is comprehensible, um, comprehensible to our region, uh, reason. So Albert Einstein understands that science requires a whole lot of faith in order for their presuppositions to work. Um, another guy, Richard Dawkins, who you should all be familiar with, um, he wrote an atheist as someone who believes that there is nothing beyond the natural. His term believe is really faith, that there's a trust, um, that, that it takes faith that there's nothing beyond the physical world, no supernatural creative intelligence lurking behind the observable uh, universe. This Lennox goes on to say that notice that the atheist believes that there's nothing beyond the natural world because he or she cannot actually prove it. So, so really, like all people are operating on, the, on the, the idea of faith. Whether you acknowledge it or not, um, Anything that goes beyond, you know, being able to be reproduced, um, if, if that, that's, that takes faith to believe. And, and nobody can recreate creation. Nobody can recreate the afterlife, what's going on when you die. So both sides require faith. And so when Habakkuk here writes that the righteous or the just shall live by faith, what does he mean? How does he understand faith um, at this point because of the significance of this verse I, verse I think it's worthwhile to sort of explore some other passages uh, so please hold your place in Habakkuk we all know how terribly difficult it is to find this little book and uh, uh, but maybe our pages are starting to get worn in this section after a couple weeks here the the first if you'll turn with me over to Romans chapter one uh, here Paul uh, this is known as, uh, many have described Romans as sort of the, the Christian constitution. We went through Romans a few years ago, and, and in Romans we see that 
that Paul is writing to a group of believers in Rome that he's never met. They have no idea who he is. There's a lot of speculation about what he believes and what he's doing. So Paul writes Romans, which is a very unique book in comparison to his other writings. He writes out this letter to sort of to explain what he believes, why he believes it, what evidence is there. And in the very early pages, or right away in verse 16, we'll pick up. He launches into this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is simply the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. That he died according to the scriptures as a payment for our sin. That he was buried and he rose again. That's the gospel. We're told that the, the gospel is activated in an individual's life through faith or belief. When you hear the truth about what Jesus did, you can either reject or respond. And so as you respond, that is faith. We're told that upon belief in the gospel, that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and that you're born again. That is Christianity 101. And so Paul writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the truth that Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and that he rose on the third day. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God. Remember back to Habakkuk, for the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his indivisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So this little section of scripture, I mentioned the Reformation. For those of you that are not familiar with the Reformation, about 500 years ago, the the anniversary just happened. I could be off by like a few decades But let's just call it 500 years ago, 1500s. There was a a Catholic scholar by the name of Martin Luther. Um, He was an attorney, very bright man. And he made a trip to Rome. And there's some steps in Rome. Forgive me for not having the name memorized. The story goes is that they were teleported somehow from Israel. uh, That the, The story goes that they're the actual steps that Pontius Pilate stood on. I don't necessarily believe this. I'm just telling you what the story is. That the steps miraculously moved from Israel to, to Rome. And people do penance. They're literally, the steps will be covered in blood as people basically crawl up the steps on their knees. Going up, 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 up. Uh, Luther had been, really he was, a, he was a seminary professor and he'd been teaching through the book of Romans. And so he's doing his penance on the steps and he's about a third of the way up uh, trying to earn his salvation. And he's meditating on Romans, this book which he'd been teaching through. And as he's about a third of the way up the steps, this verse, 
verse 17 of Romans, where it says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And it was like in that moment, he had clarity. He said, everything I'm doing, trying to earn my salvation with God is totally wrong. The Bible says that it's about faith. He, he would go on to say, whoa, you, uh, you mean that righteousness, righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine. He would later refer to it as sort of this alien concept that this righteousness was an alien, not like space aliens, but something foreign to himself that then he gets sort of credit for. He goes on to say, talking about his conversion experience, he said, when I discovered that I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. So this verse transformed Luther's whole life. He would then go back and he would pin his 95 thesis and, and what we know historically as the Reformation would begin to take shape from this verse. Another verse that we can go to, if you keep turning towards the back into Galatians, this verse is used again there. The reason that we're going through and looking at these is to get some insight from the New Testament, understanding what Habakkuk wrote. So in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, well, Paul here is, this is one of his earliest writings. Galatians is sometimes referred to as a mini Romans. Um, Paul is dealing with the Judaizers, those who came through after him and began to teach that, oh, the whole salvation by faith and grace, that's, that's, that's nice in all of Paul, but the reality is you have to continue to follow the law. If you want to be saved, you need to continue to live your life submitted to the law, and then you'll be okay with God. And so then Paul writes in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 10, for as many as are the works of the law under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Not to, not to give you guys too much, but I probably am. He mentions Abraham. In Romans chapter four, Paul builds the case the whole idea of faith and guard yourselves, us in this church. We tend to think, oh, the Old Testament was a different God. He handled people differently. And now in the New Testament, because of the cross, he handles things completely distinct from the Old Testament. There's additional revelation, but Paul builds a case going back to Abraham that it's always been by faith. It's never been by works. Here he builds the case that the law was simply to point us to Christ in, in grace. Uh, it's always been that way. Um, finally, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews uh, 10, 38, and I would ask you to uh, kind of put another bookmark here. We're just going to briefly cover this, but we're going to circle back around. Uh, Hebrews can be one of those books that's difficult to find. Um, we're about to go back to Habakkuk. Um, so if you only have one bookmark, you can sort of use your hand for a little bit. 
But in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, the author of Hebrews writes, but my righteous one shall live by faith, quoting from Habakkuk. The author then goes on to say, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. I'm going to pause there. Hold your spot. But to orientate you, this verse of Habakkuk 2.4 is the introduction by the author of Hebrews that he uses to introduce chapter 11, which we know as sort of the heroes of the faith. All of these people from Abel, Enoch, um, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, um, and the others, those who were executed for their faith, really getting us the sort of the capstone of that whole section is in Romans, I mean Romans, Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses there, which we'll look at in a second. So he uses that whole introduction to get to the point to point people to Christ and to keep their eyes focused on him. So now we can go back to Habakkuk. So when he says, but the righteous shall live by faith, the justified are those who in simple terms trust God at his word. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said this about faith. He said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. So the idea here this faith, trusting in what God said, God had made promises about the future Messiah. The people of the Old Testament were saved by Christ just as much as we are. They had less revelation than we do to respond with. Now that as we see this passage work itself out in the New Testament, we see that the faith that God wants us to have is that we put our trust in Christ for salvation and that we continue to walk with him by faith. Um, faith is for salvation, but it's also for living our Christian lives. We don't just sort of come to Christ by faith, get saved, and then we no longer have to walk by faith. The Christian life is a life of faith. And we don't always see what God is doing. And sometimes we look around us and we like, I have no idea what God is doing. I remember at the end of my last deployment, I had just completed reading through the, the whole of the Bible. And I had no idea what God was doing, but I remember distinctly having this feeling as I came back into San Diego, sort of, I just remember holding my Bible going, I think I was supposed to do something more with this book, but I have no idea what. Like, I, I didn't, it, it, looking back, I can kind of see how God used that, but I remember being on the ship in that tiny little, like, bunk trying to like finish the bible before i got back to san diego and sort of having this feeling like i'm supposed to do something more with this like i and i got back and i met with my friend larry who was a pastor and i said you know i, I think i need to do this school or something he's like no you don't he's like god has you on a different track just relax god he said god isn't a fog light out in front of you he's a lamp under your feet and according to psalm 119 so just take your next couple steps and do that for a few years and see where it leads you. 
Well, it led me here. Um, okay, faith, live by faith, live by faith. If you take anything from today, live by faith. Now, God, in the next section here, which I'm going to fly over to spare some time, he's going to address those who are not walking by faith. He's going to address the proud one. For those of you, like deep within my heart, I have this strong sense of justice. Like I have a terrible time letting things go. Um, if there's an injustice, I want to see sort of things taken care of. And I think poor Habakkuk is struggling with this. And so God now is going to say, hey, even though Bab- the Babylonians are going to come, they're going to basically destroy you as a nation. They're going to take you into captivity, which we see in the story of Daniel. He said, they're still going to give an account. And so we see five woes. Uh, I don't think I have enough. Uh, I'll, re- I'll read through quickly. So in verse 6, we begin, woe number one. Will not all of these take up a taunt, taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his? For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all of its inhabitants. Okay, so in simple terms, woe number one. This is dealing with um, theft, extortion, high interest, plundering, murder. Even we see environmental damage um, for how they treated the land irresponsibly. And the consequence of this sin was those that have wronged you will see this rising up of those that will wrong that will bring justice to them. Moving on to woe number two, verse nine. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and rafter will answer from the framework. So here the sin is unjust gain, that they're, that they're moving ahead unjustly. The way they're getting rich and doing things, it, it, it's, it's not right the way they're doing it. The consequences, basically in, in layman's terms, the stuff is going to testify against them that one day it says like the rafters of the house will basically call out against you. Uh, that would be a terrifying thing. So consequence. Uh, consequence number three, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. It is, it is, is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? Here it is, the sin through power and death and corruption and everything that they're gaining actually becomes the fuel of the fire of destruction that's coming their way. In verse 14, there's a beautiful like ray of sunshine in the midst of all of this. Hope for the future, the day. And God says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and the water, like waters over the sea. So in the midst of this, suddenly God's going to reveal himself to the whole world in a way that is undeniable. Moving on to verse 15, we get the fourth woe. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom of evil to make them drunk. 
so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the, the, cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the towns, and all of its inhabitants. So here are the sins. This is like drunkenness to nakedness. Um, and, and there's more environmental stuff. Harm that was done to the animals, to uh, human bloodshed. Basically, the consequence of this is that God, through his right hand, this, this hand of power, is to come and to bring strong consequence. He's going to expose them for their sinfulness. Um, and they'll be shamed for all to see. Moving on to the fifth woe. We're, we're plowing through the heavy stuff here. Um, what profit is the idol when, it, when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, and to a mute one, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath inside of it. This is the sin of idolatry. This is actually really funny. He says you carve a piece of wood and you call it your, your idol, and then you're telling it to speak, 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 and expecting something to happen. Like the, the consequence of this is there's folly, and your idol will never actually speak. Okay, we get to verse 20. Sort of like the end game of what God is saying. Um, this is sort of the calm before the storm. In verse 20, there's this sobering account. The Lord says to him, which he's going to end with, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I read this and I think of like as a child, when you get into trouble, go get in my bedroom and sit on the bed until I come. There's nothing worse as a kid. There's a lot of times to punish in my house. It's just that just, I don't think my kids are in here, but it's like, just go in there and wait and I'll let them wait. And then I'll walk in and say, we need to talk. And then we'll talk, and that's like the end of it. But that stewing in their juices, like, oh, no, dad is really, really mad. Um, this is sort of the Lord says, this is coming. Let, let the whole earth be silent before me. This is like terrifying. And so we end with Habakkuk's response. So we see a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to uh, Shinagonuth. Correct me if I said that wrong. Um, Lord, I have heard the report of you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Okay, so the first thing, this is sort of an introduction. That, that word that I kind of stumbled through, Shinagoth, you might have something else there. Um, th this, this means it's a highly emotional poem. If you kind of skip down in verse 3, you'll see Selah in verse around 9. You'll see another Selah in verse 13. You'll see another Selah. And then the very last word of, of Habakkuk, what you'll read is, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So Habakkuk has, has basically taken his encounter with God. He's going to take it and shape it into poetic form. And then it's going to be set to music so that people could remember the lesson that he learned. Uh, 
In the beginning here, you just see a total sober spirit from Habakkuk. He had all of these questions in the beginning. God responded to him. It sort of left him with more confusion. By the end, you see this this soberness in honest of God. He says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I, I don't know if you guys have ever had like moments in your life, if you look back where you're, where you have something happen to you, where, you, where, where everything is just sort of stripped away and you're just in total awe of the creator. Um, I have a couple probably weird ones. But I remember for me, one of like the big moments in my life when I was really, I was new to the Christian faith. I was wrestling through what God was doing in my life. Um, I was heading overseas um, to deployment. In fact, my platoon had already left to go to the Middle East. And I stayed behind to go to, to Halo School, free fall training. And as we went through the training, uh, you reach a certain point where you actually do a true halo, high altitude, low opening, where you have to jump with, with, with oxygen. And instead of like if normal parachuters jump from like 12,000 feet, 12 to 13, um, you don't need oxygen, you don't need anything like that. Then you can increase in altitude and you can go up to like, I forget where the breakoff is, but about 29,000 feet, I think you can go up with just oxygen. And then above 29,000 feet, when you get up to like the 30 to 35,000 feet jump, you need to pre-breathe oxygen for 30 minutes before you go up to that altitude so that you don't get uh, lose your ability to sort of function. And so it was my first real high altitude where we had to breathe oxygen. And it was a surreal experience. Um, some of you might think, well, just jump out of a plane is surreal, but I, we kind of have grown accustomed by this point. But I'll never forget that moment of seeing the ramp open up at like, I, I forget the numbers, I've lost my logbook, but it was somewhere in the 30,000 foot range. And you can see, this is like where airliners fly, and you see like the curvature of the earth. And you, like, I don't know if it was a time of the day, but like the darkness is, it's dark when you look up, and then it's like you see the earth. And it wasn't so much like a feeling of terror, but I remember like on the ramp before going out, just sort of going like, this was not a time for me to voice my concerns to God about any injustice. I was just, (laughs) I was just in awestruck. I realized how small I was and, and I was seeing just a snapshot of his creation that he spoke into existence. I realized that I was nothing but like a small man sort of looking out over, like seeing the curvature of the earth. And I just remember like, well, I I kind of put everything into perspective. I was like, man, you're awesome, God. I have nothing to say. I made my peace the night before with him, so I knew I was good. But I like, (laughs) but it wasn't like fear. It was just sort of awestruck. I've experienced this feeling like surfing really big waves or when you dive underwater at like 120 feet, when you get down real low, you suddenly, there's a, like a clarity of like, man, I am so, so small. Um, my greatest accomplishment is nothing compared to God's creation. And I think Habakkuk is having this moment. He's just sort of, 
Lord, I heard the report of you and I fear. Like I, Lord, I want you to revive the work. Remember everything that Josiah, he's like, I want to see revival in your people. And if that means coming through the Babylonians, so be it. And then he sort of pleads with God in wrath, remember mercy. And this, this is the gospel. I mean, this is the cross. See, the tool in which God's wrath was poured out, the cross of Christ, his wrath is going out fully on his son. And in that wrath, mercy is being demonstrated to all of us. He's withholding what is, what is done to us. This is beautiful that justice and mercy are being demonstrated and exercised that our sin is fully absorbed in the cross. And Habakkuk is just in awe of God. And so then going from verse 13 to 15, trying to figure out how much time I have. So verse 3, what's happening in this whole section is that that Habakkuk is looking to the past. Habakkuk is going to reflect upon the hand of God throughout Israel's history. And I think that there's an important lesson here that whatever trial or tribulation you're going through, it's important to reflect on how has God worked in your life up to this point. There's a case for journaling. I am terrible at journaling. But, but there's something to sort of reflect and give thanks. I think that Thanksgiving, this is why it's so critical, like for us to, to reflect on things that we can give thanks for. Because as we reflect on how God has worked in the past, it increases our faith in him as we look to the future of the unknown. And this is what Habakkuk is doing. He's going to move from Mount Sinai of the giving of the commandments to the, to the plagues of Pharaoh, um, uh, verses 3 through 7. God comes from Taman, the holy one of Mount Paran, as his splendor covers the heavens and the earth is filled with his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, the plagues of Pharaoh, remember, and, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains we were, were shattered, and the ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tents curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Now he's going to move on to the parting of the Red Sea in verse 8. Did the Lord's rage against the rivers, or was it your anger against the rivers, or was it your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horse on your own chariots of salvation? We see God is a warrior. Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement, chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of waters was swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. The sun and the moon stood in, in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows and at the radiance of your gleaming, gleaming spear, in indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the house, you struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. 
The exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. So he goes through, God is a warrior. You see in this song, Joshua's victory at Gibeon, the sun and the moon standing still. He's reflecting on all that God has done. And in verse 16, he turns his attention to the future. Habakkuk, which starts on on shaky, uncertain, fearful ground, leads to basically worship, peace, and trust of God in the midst of uncertain times. He said, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bone, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the days of distress. Twenty years forward, he was going to wait for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit in the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, then the key of all of Habakkuk, verses 18 and 19, he, he lists all of this bad stuff that he knows is going to come f- future. He says, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. This is beautiful. There's great lessons. I don't, I, I don't know what storms you're presently going through, but it was David Jeremiah who says you're either entering into a storm in the midst of a storm or you're coming out of a storm, and it constantly re- recycles in this life. This life is filled with things that can kind of bring us anxiety. And the key is to keep our eyes on the Lord. This is faith, trusting him. Um, I read from that verse of Habakkuk uh, 10.38, or that verse, Hebrews 10.38, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, which led into the heroes of the faith. And then it leads to Hebrews 12.2, which says to keep your eyes on the Lord. Um, There's a story, a true story. Um, You guys remember Apollo 13? I wasn't alive back then, but the whole, the, the guys launched into space. There's a movie, Tom Hanks. So this is where I got my information from. Um, <clears throat> so Apollo 13 in the movie, they're up there. Everything's disabled. They had, they had cut off the engines. They're trying to figure out a way to get the guys home. And they say what we need them to do is they need to turn on the burners, but they'd shut everything down, the computers and everything, in order to, to, to basically conserve energy, to, to try to get them on track. And so... From uh, Houston, they sort of relay up, hey, we need you to do something. We need you to do a manual burn, and we need you to hold this course. And so they sort of are up there de- de- debating, and it's, it's, okay, well, we can turn on the computers so that we can keep our bearing, and then you, you've, you, they're like, you need to hold the thrusters on for 39 seconds, but the problem is you can't turn on the computer because if you turn on the computer, there's no guarantee that you'll have the, the energy to continue the journey. So this is like a terrifying time. This is known as like a, the, the 39 seconds of, of sort of a, of a manual, um, I'm blanking on the word, of the manual sort of adjustment. And so somewhere along there, what's his name? The, uh, I have it here. Uh, I know it's a famous scientist, uh, Lovell, um, Jim Lovell. He basically said, hey, what course do we need to hold? And we have it. We have an object. We have the earth. As long as we keep the earth in our window, we can turn on the thrusters and manually guide the, the, the craft 
And so they kind of do a stopwatch, like three, two, one, let's go. They bust on the afterburners. They keep the sort of the, the earth in, in view. And it was one of these huge moments that got them home safely. And the reason I bring this up, because if you go with me, I told you to hold your place in Hebrews chapter 12. Remember that the just shall live by faith or the righteous will live by his faith. <clears throat> I should have followed my own words and kept Hebrews in place here. It's one. Hebrews chapter 12. So Hebrews lists all of these people of old who had walked by faith. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this picture, like those guys in the space shuttle that had to turn on their thrusters and keep the earth in their window, for the Christian to live and experience the peace that Habakkuk experienced, the lesson here is to live by faith, to keep Christ at the center of your life. And if you can do that, then whatever's happening around you, whether it's politics, whether it's sickness or health, things that are crumbling, in the midst of these things, if you keep Christ in the center, there's a, there's a peace and joy that exceeds all understanding, something you can't talk about. I made it in time. <laughs> we're going to pray, and then we're going to do the chairs. So don't, the Bibles first, and then the chairs. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you. And praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this letter of Habakkuk, this, this amazing story tucked away in the Old Testament, showing that you've always been a God of faith, that you have always been a God that operates by grace. And I thank you from this very difficult lesson that Habakkuk had to learn of trusting you and your will in the midst of difficult and trying times. Father, I pray that you would help each of us to, um, to grow in our understanding of who you are. For those here um, who maybe haven't trusted you for salvation, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see the cross for what it is, that they would, by faith, be able to place um, their trust in you, for those of us who have come to know Christ as Savior, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to live our lives according to faith. Lord, as we look at the world around us, there are so many, so many trying and troubling times. It's easy to worry about our kids, our grandchildren, our health. Um, but Lord, we know that you are in control. And so, Father, we by faith come to you and trust you. We ask that you would increase our faith. Help us to believe where we doubt. We are thankful, Lord, for the work of Christ on the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.